Good morning, everyone. Are we, um, can you hear me? Are we mic'd up well? Uh, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Russell Gold. I'm an energy reporter with the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to be moderating today this uh, very good panel we have. Uh, starting off uh, the track for <coughs> transportation, energy, and the environment. Um, and I want to welcome everyone on behalf of the Texas Tribune to the Texas Tribune Festival 2017. I guess we're kicking off right now. Um, and uh, this panel uh, is called, Is There an Oil Boomer Around the Corner? That's what we're going to be talking about. Um, it's, a, it's a great day. If you want to stay in this uh, room, there's going to be, I think, five more panels today on topics having to do with energy and the environment, transportation. Uh, they're going to be talking about commuting. They're going to be talking about water in here. But if you want to stray a little, there are also some great panels going on elsewhere uh, in this building and, and, and I guess other buildings where they're having sessions. Um, Trump and Mexico, the politics of bathrooms. These are ones I just wrote down. These look great. <laughs> Race, voting, and the courts. And then, of course, tomorrow morning, uh, Senators Cornyn and Cruz, Cruz will be here uh, doing a, an interview. So lots of great stuff left to come uh, at the, the, the Trib Fest. Um, so let me introduce, let me make sure I've got everyone, uh, but let me introduce the panelists. And then what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into this. Uh, ask a bunch of questions, try to get a sense of what's going on with uh, oil and gas here in Texas, uh, and then we're going to save lots of time at the end for questions, so come prepared uh, to ask our, our great panel some questions. So starting on my left, uh, the far left is Alan Gil Gilmer. Uh, Alan is the co-founder and executive chairman of Drilling Info, and also currently the chair of TIPRO. Uh, Drilling Info, if people don't know it, is a, is a um, I guess a, a software company uh, that if you want to know what's been drilled where, how much oil came from, and how much gas, how deep it was, anything you'd ever want to know about any wells drilled in the United States, you just pretty much go to Drilling Info. They, they sort of pioneered that. Um, uh, also to my left is Todd Staples, the president of the Texas Oil and Gas Association, former uh, Ag Commissioner, two-term Ag Commissioner as well. Uh, moving to my right, uh, Melinda Taylor. Uh, she is the Associate Director of the K. Bailey Hutchinson Center for, I always get this wrong, Energy Law and Business at the uh, University of Texas uh, and also a, um, on the Faculty of UT Law. Uh, then we have Ryan Sitton, a uh, member of the Texas Railroad Commission, one of the oil and gas regulators here uh, in town, in the state. Uh, and then finally, Ken Morgan, uh, uh, on my far right, Director of the TCU uh, Energy Institute. So um, thank you all very much for coming. So let's get started. The, the, the title of this session is, Is There an Oil Boom Around the Corner? Which I found a little peculiar. Because when I went to look at numbers, we're currently producing about 3.4 million barrels a day of oil in Texas. So I'm, I'm sort of curious, and, and I'll, I'll open up to the panel, or, or frankly, anyone in the audience. If Texas were its own country, and I know arguably there are people who feel that it let's is. Let's that. that. <laughs> but if it were. Um, how would it rank internationally as a producer? Um, does any of any idea where, where Texas would stand currently at current production rates? Uh, you know, number 5, 10, 20, 30. Anyone? Just oil production? Just oil production. For put, putting gas out. And, and, and the, the trick here is that I also am going to include the United States without Texas as an oil producer. So we, we've carved Texas off. It is its own oil producer. Where does it stand in, in the global oil production? Commissioner, you want I think to think we're sixth or seventh. Okay. Very close. I came, up, I came up with number nine. Okay. So we're, we we're trail, in the top ten. Yeah. Saudi, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, Russia, 
the US outside of Texas would be number three. And then there's a big drop, China, Canada, Iraq, Iran, United Arab Emirates, and then Texas. But what's really interesting about that is who we're ahead of. Nigeria, Kuwait, Venezuela, Mexico, um, some, Brazil, some very major oil producers. So Texas currently is a world-class oil producer. There's no question about that. A um, Couple quick facts to get going. 218,000 oil and gas jobs in Texas in August, according to the Federal Reserve Bank up in Dallas. And this, this kind of blew me away, and, and I'm sure you guys put out, the Texas Oil and Gas Association put out some numbers on this, but Moody's had numbers that are even bigger. Producers spent $27 billion in the Permian Basin between April of 2016 and July of 2017. So let, let's jump in. Alan, let me, let me ask you this first question. So give us a sense. We're already producing an incredible amount of oil. You have a pretty good handle on, on what's out there, what can be drilled. Can Texas go further? And what would it take to go further? And you know, the, and the other thing I want you to address, if you don't mind, is that if you had told me Texas would be producing three and a half million barrels, 3.4 uh, million barrels of oil a day, I would say, well, sure, because the oil prices are 80 or 90 dollars. They're not. They're 50 dollars. What's going on here? And and how much more could Texas? So, set the table for for this discussion about Texas and oil production. All right. So, you know, from a reserve or kind of an economically recoverable resource base, I won't call it reserves yet, but it's a. Uh, uh, we'll never produce the last drop. I mean, we have a resource base here that's probably twice Saudi Arabia's, maybe bigger, in the Permian Basin. The amount of oil and gas in Texas in Permian Basin is twice what Saudi Arabia has? In a recoverable basis, yes, okay. with what we're proving out with the unconventional. So the reality is when you start looking at the numbers of years and, how, and, and the ability of swamping uh, global supply, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. Uh, really, that's why Texas today is in the swing position, because at $60 a barrel, we pretty much, Texas nearly alone, uh, will uh, take 50 to 80% of the global supply growth uh, that is out there. That's why I think it's really hard for the price of oil to get much higher than $60. Because when the price goes up, then Texas producers come out, they drill more, and the price goes back we, down. We produce a huge amount of new, re uh, new oil and there's a clear line of sight to adding a million barrels a day from Texas mm -hmm. uh, easily over the you know with sixty dollars and less. So and you that, think you think a four point five million is is million? If we're at three and a half million barrels a day, you think we could get up to four and a half million barrels a day without within a, in a year and a half? Any? All right. Well, um, Ken, let me let me go down to you because one of the if we are going to have, I guess, a double boom, a boom on top of a boom. Um, what's it going to take? Because the infrastructure right now is already being a little bit strained in terms of pipelines, in terms of, is that going to be a, 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 is that going to be a, a confining issue, where you, the ability to build those? Yeah, when you take a look at what happened, and we sit and watch it too at the Energy Institute, and all of a sudden we start to evaluate out in the, the Permian Basin, and the numbers and the estimates just go through the roof, and you say, okay, that's a good thing. Right. There it is. I call it locking down your resources. We're good for a long time. How to get it out of there, how to move it out of there, and what to do with it once you get it out. That's a lot of sweet crude coming out of there and even more gas, mm -hmm. uh, natural gas. Right. So let's say you, an infrastructure is what we're famous for, mm -hmm. best in the world, but we don't have enough. We cannot move it fast enough out of this new gigantic play. And if we do, let's say so that you're we're talking about building new pipelines. New pipelines that are needed. Can, can do you think that Texas, because obviously 
Building pipelines have been very controversial in other places, Keystone XL, now we've got the Rover pipeline in the Northeast. Will we be able to build new pipelines in Texas? I think it's going to be very political. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have a lot of uh, you know, uh, hurdles to jump through, even in the state of Texas, because okay. money will be pouring in to take a look at this, and is it the right thing to do, and uh, should we be doing it? The fact is, for this nation, uh, this is energy security, right, mm -hmm. that we have. It may be a little slower than it used to be in the old days about getting that infrastructure built, but I think inevitably, as we see, we, we're going to need it. We're going to try to find ways and maybe creative new ways to get that uh, oil and gas out of there because we want to get it to the refineries, we want to get it to markets, but again, it's sweet crude and we got a little problem with that about what we do with it if we used it. So what do we, we've got to face some issues about what do we do with that as it comes out. Do, do you think that the people of Texas need to be convinced that to allow that infrastructure? I mean, are, are, there's going to be resistance, so how do, you, how do you work with that resistance to sort of say, you know, let us build these? Russell, I think it's a bigger picture. I think we're in an energy boom, and we're trying to decide what's going to fill that energy boom, mm -hmm. right? And we happen to be lucky enough to have a lot of it here of oil and gas. Could there be other supplemental and uh, alternative energy sources? Potentially, it's an energy boom uh, that we're, we're, we're moving into. And how we're going to do that in Texas, I think at least, I, I like to say you need food, water, and energy. You better have those as resources. Think of a country that doesn't. We've got them here in Texas, and it's the management of it, and do we have the political will to move it along? We don't want to come up on the short end of that energy because if it goes to $70, $80, $90, and we're not moving it, uh, then that's a problem for us, inflation, our economy, how it impacts us as a nation. The nice thing is we're poised at the gates. Texas can do it. We can respond very quickly if we need to, even if a year to 18 months and start moving this. So. It's a good problem to have because it's ours. We do have it. We may manage it well. We may mismanage it. We may have hurdles to jump over, but at least it's in our backyard, and that's, that's a good thing we haven't had in a long time. We talk about uh, swing producer being able to step up. So let's go to the OPEC commissioner, um, Ryan Sitton, or the future <laughs> OPEC commissioner. <laughs> well, with the way they're talking about Texas being a swing producer, I begin to wonder. But, but, but let's, talk a little about, news. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about oil and gas regulation. Um, because, uh, so you sit on the Railroad Commission, it is the oil and gas regulator, and, and obviously you want uh, a healthy, uh, excuse me, a healthy oil and gas production. Uh, but you made a little news this week, and I wanted to address that, um, because there was, uh, so for people who weren't paying attention, there was a, a meeting of the Railroad Commissioner, excuse me, meeting of the Railroad Commission, and it had to do with uh, the executive director, former executive director, Kim, uh, Kim Corley. Uh, and it was pretty clear that you, and uh, Commissioner Craddock were not getting along. Uh, you accused her of running a dictatorship. Uh, you accused her of violating Texas open meeting laws. The, that, that's what happened. So if I'm an oil and gas producer and I'm looking at the regulators fighting in an open meeting, I'm getting nervous. What's going on? I mean, how do you, does, does Texas have a, 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 a healthy regulator right now? We just lost our executive director and two of our commissioners are fighting with each other. Well, Explain if, what's going on. If you, if you look at this at a more broad level, and you, you said, Ryan, you want a healthy energy industry. Well, I think that's what the people of the state want. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. It's not really all that political. And whether you're a Democrat, Republican, don't vote, don't care about politics, pretty much everybody in the state wants affordable, reliable energy. They know that this is a, it's, it's the biggest piece of our economy. And so you go back to this question about investments, infrastructure, and I'm not just talking about pipelines or drilling new oil wells or refineries, import-export facilities, terminal facilities. I mean, all of that is part of that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we regulate a good chunk of that. Part of that process is making sure that because we are elected, 
We're not appointed officials. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that we are extremely judicious in following our, our own rules, our own processes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's us holding each other accountable. And look, there is, I, I think it's better, I think the average voter, the average oil and gas um, business person says, look, I'm glad that I understand the dynamic. I want to know the conversations that are going on. The conversation this week really actually wasn't about me. It was about Kim Corley, the executive director, and the chairman, and what had transpired the day before. The fact that I was the person that pointed it out doesn't actually, it, all that does is bring me in as a, as a voice of a question. So I think that, yeah, while today you may say, man, is there, is there an issue with the Railroad Commission? I think it's simply one of transparency and us being transparent, even though it may be a little bit contentious at the time, in a broad sense, is very good for the state. And that's what the people of the state want. But as, you know, I've been following Texas politics for 15 years now, and I can't remember the last time I saw that sort of open uh, meeting discussion going on. And, and, you know, I bumped into uh, somebody the other day, and they, the first thing they asked me is, are you going to ask Commissioner Sitton about this? Because it really was quite notable. Um, can you tell us right now that, that you can work with the other commissioners to, to advance the agenda and to adequately regulate oil and gas? Absolutely, and that's not a... You have no, no, no issues, nothing, nothing with Commissioner Craddock that needs to be resolved? Oh, no, no. This issue of what happened on Monday absolutely has got to be resolved. Okay. Well, I want to understand what, what are the rules, and not just for, for Christy, but for myself, for Wayne. If, if, a, if we're going to... Hiring executive director is really important. And Kim was doing a great job. She was respected in the industry. I mean, I've heard nothing but... Positive reviews. You did not want to done. get rid of her. No, okay. I mean, in fact, but, I mean, Todd, you heard reviews on Kim. They were positive. Have I mean, you ever heard anything negative about Kim? No. Not, not my knowledge. No. Okay, so you know, there was a there was a positive sense of the fact that that Christy took that step um, without talking to myself, without Wayne, without following our process. Raises a question. We've asked the question. I want to get it clarified. Uh, after this is over, we'll understand exactly how that needs to be done, and we'll move forward. Uh, does Commissioner Craddock should she still stay in that role? I mean, are you concerned about her ability to, to, to fulfill that function based on what you saw? I, that hasn't even come up yet. I haven't even given that any thought. It's this, at the end of the day, you know, railroad commissioners, the chairmanship is, is, for the most part, a formality. Each of us can put something on the agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, each of us can, 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 can drive discussion in there. We're really three equal members, unlike, say, the legislature, where the chairman sets the agenda items. So I, I don't know that that's really even relevant to the conversation today. But look, I fully expect that once we understand what happened and why it happened the way it did, what the rules are, if it's okay, if it's not okay, then after that, we'll move forward. Well, let me, uh, Todd, turn to you. You represent uh, the, the, the lobby group, the Organization of Oil and Gas Producers. Are you concerned about what's going on at the, regulator, the, the, the Railroad Commission right now? Uh, our industry supports a, a very robust, science-based Railroad Commission. We believe the Texas Railroad Commission is a, is a global um, leader in terms of regulation and uh, we think the legislature just reaffirmed their confidence in them gave them a significant increase in funding they recognize that no matter what the price of oil is around the globe today that texas is going to be a player we're mm -hmm. positioned that well and we support the commission and uh, support the commissioners and those are management issues that the commissioners themselves will have to work out but the structure and the integrity of the agency is there and is designed and equipped to move forward and to lead Texas and lead the nation and lead the world in reality. I like Todd's answer. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, uh, this is a, a topic about oil, but as you know, yeah. if you drill for oil, certainly out in the Permian, you often get a lot of gas. You bet. Um, and a lot of that natural gas right now is going to Mexico through pipelines. I mean, I think uh, the numbers 
several BCF a day. Yeah. I don't have the number yeah. right off the hand. Nine. Nine? Thank you. Um, very significant export. Um, and U.S. relationship with Mexico is not the greatest. So you're in the Oval Office. You're meeting with President Trump. What do you tell him about NAFTA? What do you tell him about, about international flows of, of energy? Well, I think in, in North America, we, we're in a very unique situation with Canada, the United States, and Mexico to continue to develop relationships and partnerships to meet the needs of, of our hemisphere and, and the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico is the number one trading partner for Texas, mm -hmm. uh, not only in, in energy, but in agriculture and just a variety of issues. There's literally billions of dollars of trade. But partners often need to have conversations. They mm -hmm. need to sit down and discuss the protocols in place and how that works. And I, I, we're just encouraging them to be very sensitive to that fact as they have those discussions with our neighbors and make certain that we're positioned here to do business around the globe. You're encouraging the, the White House and negotiators, the administration, to be sensitive to that. We, yes. So are you, are you worried, perhaps, that this might, that they're in, in the rush to, to come up with a better deal, which is what the president likes to talk about, that, that there might be an interference in this or that, that your producers, your members might be impacted? Well, anytime policymakers have discussions, everyone's sitting and paying attention. <laughs> there are consequences to what takes place. But I think with the level of investment that we've seen in Texas, with right. the capital that is here in this state, that uh, we are going to be positioned to be a player, be a part of that conversation, and jobs are going to flow here. The world looks to Texas. Uh, in terms of technology and innovation and breakthroughs, so, so, so I, I think we'll be positioned no matter what takes place. So in your the direct White message House. to President uh, Trump about NAFTA would be: be cautious, be, be careful. Uh, sure, be careful. Absolutely. Okay. Sure. Right. Russell, can I add something to this? Because sure. just this week, uh, we met with a, a bunch of Mexican officials that were up here, and um, and I've gone down with Melinda. We had a trip down there about a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, I think to sum up the Mexican-American relationship based on simply the president's dialogue is oversimplification. Mm -hmm. I, I, the meeting we had just this week, there is so much that they, they want to increase their electricity output at, mm -hmm. an ex, at, at an exponential rate. They're looking solely, solely is probably too with, strong. With Texas natural gas? Absolutely. I was about to say, almost with, with Texas natural gas being the biggest part of that, the conversations around pipelines, several companies are building pipelines to carry natural gas to Mexico. I don't think that the forward look on the U.S., Specifically, Texas-Mexico energy relationship actually is being driven all that much. So I agree with what Todd said, the message to be cautious. I would add, to the, if I wanted to be bold, the message might be, we got this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, our, our relationship is developing extremely well, and I, there is a lot of positive, a lot of positive reviews of the uh, forget the pun, a lot of positive energy coming out of how we are working <laughs> don't, together. Don't mess with Texas-Mexico energy trade. So I mean, I go that strong, but uh, I might give us some confidence that, hey, we're doing a good job, Todd, Melinda, all of us, that, that this is going forward in a positive way. Um, Melinda, let me, let me, let, let's bring you into the conversation. The Permian Basin, uh, typically we think of it as around Midland, Odessa, going out to Reeves County, the, the sort of the corner with uh, New Mexico, but it's now also moving south. Right. Um, it's moving south towards the Davis Mountains. There's been some exploration, a very high profile. Uh, announcement of Alpine High Discovery, which got some interest. And it's moving into a much more environmentally sensitive part of the state. Uh, what, what are some of the issues as, as that exploration goes down, and, and I assume that's part of the resource that Alan was talking about, what are some of the issues that, that, that Texas uh, needs to be aware of and does need, more need to be done to protect uh, that type of resource? Yeah, and I'm gonna try this. I've got a scratchy voice this morning. Can everybody hear me okay? With the, okay. 
That's a, um, I think it's a great question. As Russell said, we're um, this amazing discovery that Apache made last about a year ago in 2016 September. Um, it's in a part of the Permian, um, kind of the western and southernmost part of the Permian that nobody had prior to that point thought was really, you know, really recoverable. Um, it's an amazing resource. It's a great opportunity for the company and for people in that part of the state, certainly. Um, as Russell said, it has gotten a lot of attention because of the proximity to Balmeray Springs and Balmeray Pool, which is an amazing natural resource. Unlike a lot of West Texas, it hasn't been really heavily developed for oil and gas or, or solar power or wind, um, although those, those uh, power sources are beginning to be developed there as well. So it is important, and I think Apache is taking steps to look at how to minimize that environmental footprint on the landscape. But there clearly are water issues out there. Water is constrained. Um, there are habitats for rare species and for just you know normal, lots of species that live in the desert. There are scenic vistas and aesthetic issues that should be taken into account. Um, and it's kind of brought to light this issue of uh, what some people refer to as energy sprawl, just this intensification of energy development on the landscape that's happening not only in Texas, but all over the country and in other parts of the world. Um, that a lot of scientists are beginning to think about, you know, again, even with wind and solar, which is terrific but power sources because they don't produce carbon dioxide, um, but they do have an impact on the landscape for species. And sort of begun, you know, this particular find hasn't started that conversation, but it's a great place for Texas policymakers, the industry, uh, the local communities out there, environmental groups to kind of think about what can be done to minimize that impact. Does Texas as a state government need to do more? As we head into these new areas, does the state government need to do more uh, to protect that, to come up with new sets of rules? Yeah, so it's challenging because that part of West Texas, like all of Texas, is privately owned, right? I mean, we know this very well, and that's something we take a lot of pride in in Texas. So it's, if you're farther in the West and a producer is trying to operate on public land, on BLM land, or in the East on Forest Service land, um, the federal government can impose a lot of rules and restrictions on how that development's gonna take place. We don't really have those regulatory mechanisms here in Texas to impose those, those sorts of restrictions. So we have to uh, work with producers and encourage them to do things voluntarily. Um, I think it's difficult. I mean, I, the Railroad Commission in various instances has tried to encourage producers, um, certainly on Texas, uh, University of Texas lands, the people, the folks who manage that, Mark Hauser and his group, have been looking at ways to work with producers, again, to minimize those land impacts. But it's a tough question. Um, you know, I, for some of those resources out there, there's not an obvious answer other than lots of negotiations, raising people's awareness about what can be done to reduce those impacts on the landscape um, and trying to proceed, I think at this point, voluntarily. And just Can something to add in. We, uh, we would do workshops for royalty owners. When mm -hmm. you say private land, you're talking royalty owners, and they have yeah. a responsibility too. So we're trying to educate royalty owners about environmental impacts and things they yeah. could you know, get into their leases to help. Because a good and fair balanced way, the industry wants to do it the right way. It really challenges itself, especially over the last 
15 or 20 years to do the right thing. And that also, there's a little responsibility to the royalty owners uh, to work with the state of Texas, to work with the companies. Well, I, I think it's important to point out, though, that this is one of the most highly regulated industries <laughs> that there is. There are commissioners sitting votes on rules, well integrity rules, well casing rules. They have to issue water letters before permits are granted. They have inspectors that go out and, and look at what's taking place. And so you, it is a highly regulated industry with multiple protections in place. There are nuisance laws and liability laws that are in place. The system is actually working extremely well. It has generated the greatest investment, the greatest quality of life that we've ever seen because of that. And industry is, is being very responsible in the, in the Apache play. They contracted with an independent university to do water studies prior to a lot of activity taking yes. place. And so I think the, the, the real message is that it is highly regulated and that companies are spending billions of dollars to protect the environment. You do receive a, a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the, the Harvey, Hurricane Harvey that just impacted Texas gave us a slight glimpse of what life would be like if the keep it in the ground uh, crowd had their way. Our uh, people, we saw there was a, a fuel supply and disruption shortage mm -hmm. that occurred, mm -hmm. and we saw the what happened in communities all across Texas without that vital resource, oil and natural gas that was available. So recognizing just how critical it is, we do need more infrastructure, we need, do need more capacity, and we do need a, a situation where uh, all forms of energy are available. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree that the industry is subject to a lot of environmental rules, and that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is with respect to siting issues and the sprawl that occurs across the landscape, we, there aren't many rules because it's on private land for the most part, and the, you know, the Railroad Commission hasn't gone into that area. I'm not arguing that they should. I'm just making an observation. Um, and we know that things can be done in such a way that minimizes that footprint on the property. I mean, using single well heads to drill or single pads to drill multiple wells is one obvious thing. Um, but again, we know down in the Eagle Ford, about a third of the wells are being developed that way. It's not a practice that's yet extremely well, you know, kind of far, far spread in the industry. Um, I was part of a group that was uh, put together by the Texas Academy of Medicine, Engineering, Science and of Texas, <laughs> I have a trouble with the acronym TAMEST, um, and chaired the land um, chapter of that. TAMEST is a group that includes all the Nobel laureates in Texas and lots of academics um, who are experts in a whole variety of different scientific fields. We produced a study on the environmental and social impacts of shale development a few months ago, and one of the findings that my land group found was that there hasn't been a lot of research done on those impacts to habitat, impacts to land that I described earlier in Texas, that that's an area where we need more research at, at minimum. And there are practices that the industry could adopt that would minimize, minimize the footprint. We also observed that Texas is the only major shale producing state that does not have a Surface Damage Act. So, um, and we did recommend at least that that issue be studied by the legislature. We didn't take a position on whether the legislature should adopt it. I'm glad you brought that up. Explain to people what a surface damage act is. Because yeah. we, don't, we don't have that, and, and how does it work in other states? Yeah, so in other states, and really all of the other major shale producing states, Oklahoma, Colorado, Pennsylvania, uh, North Dakota, they have acts that give the surface, you know, in Texas, if you own a piece of property, um, it's conceivable that you don't own the mineral rights associated with that piece of property. 
So, and because we have in Texas, well, across the United States, those rights can be, we call them severed in legal parlance. So the, the mineral rights, the rights to develop oil and gas and other minerals on your property might, are completely separate from your, your right to, to use and occupy the surface. You can sell those mineral rights to anybody you want, um, and it's conceivable that as a surface owner, you don't own the mineral rights. If you're in that situation, and it's not everybody, lots of people might sell a portion of their mineral rights or sell their mineral rights but hold on to the right to lease their property so they've got some control. But for those cases where there's no ownership of the minerals and I just own the surface, I don't have any right to tell an oil company, a producer, how to develop those minerals on my land. Um, so if the... And they have a legal right to they, develop those. That's, absolutely. absolutely. And that's, that's just the way the system works. So the producer comes in, develops the property, and if, if it happens to be not a very good actor, and there are some bad actors out there, lots of good actors, but there are a few bad actors, the surface owner really doesn't have any recourse short of suing under state tort law, and the damages he can recover under tort law are very limited. Now in the last legislative session, there, there was the beginnings of a movement to bring some sort of right. service damage act. Um, I suspect that will come back in That's a year sense. and a half or That's so. That's our sense, yeah. I mean, um, we'll see. You, you represent sure, yeah. the, I mean... There's case, there's case law, uh, as, as was alluded to, that has established uh, precedent and practices. There are uh, uses that uh, surface owners are granted consideration for. I, I have not heard of uh, egregious examples of that occurring. And uh, we think that in most instances, surface owners are rewarded very handsomely for the use of their property. I want to switch topics because something happened. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Oh, wait uh -oh. <laughs> I've been waiting patiently. Very quick. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yes, everybody, should the state of Texas do more? I'll jump in here. So let me say this. Yes, we should do more. And I'm speaking very specifically about us, the Railroad Commission. Okay. And in two areas in particular. One thing we are reminded constantly is there's 27 million Texans, and less than a million of them actually know that much about the oil business. Some of them are the surface owners that uh, Melinda was just talking about. I'm trying, by the way. I'm doing my part. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> Me too. So us, be, us going out and educating people, and look, I've been very public. I think one of the problems is the Railroad Commission is named the Railroad Commission. But people don't know who is it that's regulating this, and they need to know that so that when they have a question, what's happening on my land, is this okay, is this not okay, they know who to call. Uh, and then us responding to calls, questions, whatever, and doing so in a very technical way. You know, Todd mentioned a minute ago that the, the industry, the state, the 27 million people are in favor of a very science-based agency. You notice he didn't say politically-based agency. So when people call and say, hey, I, I don't, I'm concerned about this disposal well, or I'm concerned mm -hmm. about this landfill, or I'm concerned about this oil well, or this pipeline, the answers need to be ones of engineering and science and technology. And when there is somebody, as Melinda put it, who's a bad actor, it's our job very swiftly to take them out. There's no question, and I have no bones about that. If there is somebody, and we, we get reports of them sometimes, and I consider it both a personal and an agency mission. If someone is trying to skirt the rules, they're not following the process, they're doing bad business, uh, then it's our job to, to be very aggressive in finding them and taking them out because 99.9% .9 are good operators trying to be responsible, take care of surface owners. They go above and beyond, as, as Todd said, the case law to take care of surface owners because they know in the long run it's in their interest to do that. But it's those few bad actors that make it hard on everybody. It's our job to deal with. I hear what you're saying about going in to the, the crate, finding the bad apple and plucking it out. When was the last time that, that you proposed something or the Railway Commission did something that the industry just really didn't like? You know, but you felt it was important uh, to, to rein in the industry. When was the last time you 
Well, did something, you got a call from Todd right, right afterwards saying, no, no, we don't like this at all. Don't do that. Tuesday? No. <laughs> Tuesday? No, I'm kidding. That was not true. Uh, I would say that, the, that in my time there, two and a half years, and look, when I first came in, I was a little bit, I was a little slow to move because I wasn't sure. You know, how, how new to government, new to elected mm -hmm. office, how do, how, do these, how do new rules come about? How do enforcement actions take place? I've gotten more and more comfortable in that, and I've pushed really hard, and I've never gotten that call. In fact, let me tell you this. But People, doesn't that indicate that maybe you're not, I mean, if you're not making Todd here uncomfortable, then, I mean. So let me tell you why this is. And let's mention Todd. Let's say some people ask me the question that you haven't asked yet. Ryan, uh, you have donors who are oil and gas guys. And then people will ask about that. You know, when I meet with those donors, what they tell me is they want good, assertive regulators. Mm -hmm. And people ask, wait a minute, how is it in their interest to have a good, assertive regulator? Because they know if the people of the state are confident in the regulation, then they've got a license to operate. I have never had one time an operator ask for a pass on anything. If anything, I've had more operators call and complain about another operator because they're concerned about what another operator is doing and how it impacts the industry. So, yeah, I've never had that call. And the more assertive uh, that we get, the more in general the folks that are involved in what we do, who donate to campaign, those guys are very supportive. So you talk about the social license. And something happened in April that, that probably I, I think would made many people on this panel uh, sit up and pay attention. It happened in Colorado. And um, what happened was, so Colorado, this is a state that has a long history of oil and gas exploration and a long history of oil and gas regulation. Th these are not Johnny-come-latelys. Uh, and there was a, uh, a house in Firestone, Colorado, which was it's right on the front range, suburban community, but there's a lot of oil and gas activity <coughs> going on. Uh, there was a flow line, there was a leak, an uh, explosion in the house, and two, two homeowners died. So I guess my question is, um, let me put it to you, Todd. Are you concerned about, can you sit here and tell us that that's not going to happen in Texas? I can tell you without any hesitation that safety is the number one priority of operators in Texas. And they literally place a high priority on that. They go to great lengths for due diligence. On the last conversation, what I but wanted it, to but, add. But what, the what, operator in, in Colorado, I believe, was Anadarko, which is a major operator here in Texas and, as well. And, uh, you know, what are the actual factors that led to that explosion, uh, you know, is another issue. Uh, it's a tragic situation, no doubt about it. Um, the Railroad Commission finds operators in Texas. I think every meeting you have, you leverage hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines. Uh, safety is the number one priority. Look, no matter where your energy source is, if you develop at scale, there are going to be issues. I mean, renewables, wind, solar power, they're going to be issues. The thing is, is it being done responsibly? Are there protocols in place? And I would say that this industry places a high priority on that. Well, and I think to, to, yeah. your, quite, to your comment with regards to do they get uncomfortable, do we get uncomfortable messages from the Railroad Commission? The reality is, is that every oil and gas organization in this state has been very proactive at proposing regulations onto this, into this thing because we, who knows best as to who, what are the bad actors doing than these organizations? And, you know, uh, the bonding issue, completely done by the producers that basically push forward for responsibility, bonding responsibility for producers in the state of Texas. Uh, all the safety rules, everything in the 70s, the, the rules that you saw coming forth in the 80s, the 90s, it completely looked at the abandoned rule issues. All these other issues and cleanups came from the oil and gas industry. They were proposed 
by the oil and gas industry. I want to switch. Uh, we're a few minutes away from starting to go questions. So I wanted to raise another issue, and that is that we're sitting here, we're talking about an oil boom and three and a half, four and a half million, and how we regulate it. But if you look at the news flow from just the last few months, Volvo going all hybrid and electric vehicles by 2019, uh, the number, you can pick your car company and you will come up with um, a, a growing fleet of hybrid and electric vehicles. Are we making a mistake going all in on oil when it seems like the manufacturers, the people who use it, are moving away from it? Well, here's an interesting thing is if, if you took the EIA's numbers in terms of the most aggressive global demand buildup for electric vehicles, mm -hmm. that changes uh, the, the use of oil so in terms of global demand right now at 100, and in 10, 10 years from now at 112, 113, subtract 3 million barrels a day off of that. that. That is what's really happening globally with regards to doing that. And that is the most aggressive piece. Then if you basically layer in the next piece, it's, wow, if, there, if it's at the most aggressive piece, we're going to have to use a tremendous amount of electricity. Well. Natural gas is the nat is a huge proponent of, is a huge contributor to the whole electrical flow. Right. So, the reality is is that uh, uh, oil and gas didn't get to where it was because some guys that looked like the the guy in the Monopoly set with the spats and the top hat dictated it, and it became some sort of global uh, you know conspiracy. It because because it's a, these are magic substances. You can move them a long way without a lot of energy loss. They can go. You can create products out of it, you know, the, the petrochemical side of it, fertilizer, food, everything, energy, and electricity. These are kind of magical substances, and I don't see those actually going away or, or being decimated anytime soon. No, we see a global pattern for energy. If you take a look at it in the long term over the next decade or so, it's tremendous. I said energy boom. There's a, a worldwide a potential for a lot of energy use. Where's it going to come from? How are you going to fill that gap? Expensive energy, cheap energy. Who's going to get it? How are you going to move it around? Uh, and I think that education is part of all of this. We've got to educate the public. We're trying to do a lot of workshops and programs for our school teachers. Uh, we work with UT STEM Center and the uh, Texas Natural Gas Foundation. Natural gas can move a lot of energy to a lot of places very, very quickly, and we just see a great future for it. And Melinda, I think you wanted to. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, actually, I think you're going back to your question, though. There's, and you do have to separate out gas, demand for gas versus you know, electricity production versus oil. A um, couple of points. First of all, all the increased demand for oil virtually, according to every projection I've seen from IEA to um, EIA to ExxonMobil to BP, suggests that all the new demand is going to come in developing countries, not developed countries. So, I mean, that's not to say that we don't have a huge role to play, but that's a one factor. And then the second is even the big oil companies like BP and ExxonMobil are now predicting, you know, it's a soft prediction because it's out there, it's 2035, 2040, but peak oil demand. Um, so yeah, it's not going to happen in the next decade or so. We're going to continue to grow, but there is a point where even the big major oil companies are predicting that, you know, the, the demand for oil is not insatiable, that there will because of shifts in technology and shift in con consumer demands you know, it's going to start to fall off. So, you know, yeah, we can do a whole lot in the meantime here in Texas with our industry, but it does strike me as, a, you know, we, we don't want to put all our eggs in that basket. Not that we are, because we also have a huge renewables industry here. Well, I can tell you, as, you know, following this from the Wall Street Journal, that the 
growth of electric vehicles, the growth of renewable energy, uh, the batteries, the prices keeps coming down. It, it continues surprising. You talk about oil and gas being magic substances, and I know what you're saying. That if, if you want to, you know, in terms of density, in terms of weight and size, you get a lot of energy from oil and gas. Uh, but at the same time, you drive a new electric vehicle, a Tesla, and you're like, fun car yeah, to drive. It's a great, I mean, it's, you begin to sort of see how the internal combustion engine might have some problems when you can bring in that. So I want to start well, heading to the audience. Uh-oh. One last thing. You drive this, a Tesla? this is the big point. I have driven one. Uh, this is the big point, and it gets to what makes it a magic substance. For all of our technology development, for everything we've accomplished in the human race, we have not found a way to as efficiently store energy as a hydrocarbon molecule. That's it. It's the most efficient way to store energy today in terms of cost to transport, cost to move, risks associated with all that sort of stuff. Yes, electric cars are, are great and they have their role. The problem is it takes a lot of infrastructure to make them work. Electricity in, in locations where you can get it, plug in, charging, all that sort of stuff. In developing nations, as Melinda mentioned, the, the maybe not insatiable, but the desire as they go for not on, a, not on a total energy uses, but a per capita energy uses, places like not just India and China, but Pakistan and other Middle Eastern and Asian nations, they're, they're going to use a lot of oil and natural gas. And so I think, I think that the outlook for this particular energy source is going to be strong for, I think we're talking decades before we really start to see a curbing in a, in a major portion of global energy coming from non-hydrocarbon sources. Russell's great. He's pushing all of our buttons. Can you yeah. tell that, right? And uh, we look at this. I'm a geologist. Uh, if you're going to go to these alternatives, which you like, and I've driven a Tesla too, just really cool, but they come from rare earths, there's a whole other dilemma about rare earth minerals to make these efficient that we're not accounting for in all of our energy base, carbon cycle, and all of that, that we're going to have to look at in the future. Doesn't mean I'm here to try to preserve the oil and gas business. It's just those are the balances we're going to look at and have to make decisions on as a nation, as, as the next generation that we're teaching at universities. Be sure and look under every rock. Make sure you know your decisions and then go forward with them. I think we're going to see base fuels a stable, stable energy source for a long time. Right. One, one, one last point, and I think that it's important to recognize with regards to Texas, what's driving oil and gas value today? Ten years ago, five years ago, it was politics in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Today, it is what can we produce in Texas and what can we export? That is a completely different paradigm than what we've had in 50 years with regards to value. And what, we're, what are we seeing? Because we've removed it from government control, essentially, of value and moved it into a market system, what we're seeing is the price, the break-even price, radically dropping over and over again because human ingenuity is taking place. So all of a sudden, oil and gas, because of what's happened here, has emerged as a frighteningly, frighteningly uh, economic and effective tool that's being that's having its cost reduced in a huge way at a time where wind and solar are, are reaching kind of their their physical limits with regards to what we know right now mm -hmm. and have to really start competing on cost as well because not only that we're completely burdened as much as I uh, love to hear some of my friends here in Austin talk about gas uh, the, the the tax benefits we have it's nothing compared to everything else yeah, it's interesting, and I want to go to, to questions right now. I know there are some questions, but you were just talking about prices coming down, technology. You were talking about fracking and, and essentially what fracking is given. And we, we went this whole 45 minutes without, I don't believe any of us used the word fracking, which sort of shows yeah, how right. amazing that that's just become part of what just our world is. We don't even have to talk about it. Um, so I know we've got a microphone around, and we've got a, a question to start off with. And uh, 
yes. Interested to hear what you have to say. Yes. My name is Sarah Ties, and um, to 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 be honest with you, I will tell you, I came from the oil and gas industry. So, um, so one of my concerns would be um, education about the oil and gas industry. And so my, I heard a lot from Director Morgan about that outward education. I'd like to hear a little more from Director Taylor about that. Um, actually, especially because of your environmental background, mm -hmm. um, you. When we look at uh, wind turbines, they actually use um, oil lubes every day, and they got there with oil and gas. So they're not right. completely, they're not oil neutral, okay, or carbon neutral. Um, but also, when we look at in the environment and natural gas and the pipelines, we need education, I would think, coming from folks like y'all, because when people are in the... I live in New Brownfields, and when you think about San Antonio and they're concerned about the Eagleford and they need pipelines for that gas, and gas and oil are produced together there, it's not like it, you can't just go, I think I'll only produce a gas well today. It may be in a few locations, but not many. And so the natural gas doesn't have any place to go and sometimes is vented. And one of the best ways for San Antonio and my home to improve air quality is for it to be pipelined. And then also for those communities because of the mineral taxes that would be paid by all those royalty owners. So I think the question you're, you're so you're education. Out some, how do we do that? And so how do you how do you address the education so that we can make better choices, um, more informed choices? Did you want to? Yeah, I I think that's a great question actually, and it's um, we give a lot of thought to that. I mean, UT has and I, and I know TCU does all of our Texas universities. We have a huge number of researchers who are both doing research and also teaching students, and part of that analysis or teaching is these trade-offs. But I've given a talk, um, gosh, all over the country and in a couple of foreign countries called How Green is Green Energy. Um, that's just really meant to point out that there's no such thing as a free lunch, if you will. Um, there's different impacts. Um, I, you know, depending on how you feel about climate change, then you may feel like it's the trade-offs are very much worth it to have wind turbines and lots of solar panels as opposed to more oil and gas wells. But there are trade-offs, and I'm not going to pretend that there aren't. One of the things that I find very interesting in giving that talk, though, is depending on what part of the country I'm in, I'm received very differently. I gave the talk at University of Rochester last year uh, to law students, and I mean, I was almost booed out of the room because the people would say, you know, oh, how me. can you? Yeah, <laughs> no, you know. So, so no, I was like, but it was. I mean, basically, the question was, you know, how can you even question the un, you know, unrivaled superiority of a wind turbine or a, you know, a hydro facility or whatever? And it, so it's very interesting. It's, um, but I, you know, your basic point is well taken. I certainly, with my law students, I try to point out that there are trade-offs. Um, if I may, for just one quick, because you said the keyword education system. that we mentioned before. Sign of a belief system. And we're working with, uh, again, UT, and I hope A&M and Texas Tech and all, and all the great schools here to get it into classrooms for discussion because it's another generation of decisions. You know, we think we know it all now, and we've had, we've lived our lives, we know the ups and downs, but we've got to get teachers information. Uh, they can't just get it downloaded from the internet, so we're working to try to, working with state agencies and, and uh, the industry, all industries, to get education about energy to our youngsters. I get to do it every day. I get 150 
freshmen in a class. And I get to try to get them to think about the very same things we're talking about. How are our energy futures going to be? And we're just trying to get maybe the state legislature to actually require some energy education. We're the greatest producer in this country. How can it not be in our classrooms? So we're trying to push that along. Interesting. Russell, real quick, real, I want to. Yep. Uh, one thing you didn't mention, I actually chair the Energy Institute at AM. So I'm sitting next to my counterparts here <laughs> in the Energy Institute. So one of the things that we're working on there that's specific to this is um, metrics to help people understand this, to take these very complex things and boil, boil them down to how much energy do I get for how much amount of cost, how much of how much geographic footprint, putting all these things together in simple, more simple metrics so that for the average person you can you can compare all these different things because it is so complicated. And I know that other schools are working on that too to boil these things down to simple ideas, simple measurements. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important part of that education. Well, I think it's amazing. We, we've got from TCU, A&M, UT, and then we've got Rice up here also. There's right. actually been an agreement that we need to do a better job to educate people about what goes into energy and how the energy system works. Okay, I think we have a question <laughs> up here. My name is Merrill Wade. Just thinking about these shale plays and the sheer amount of sand, water, chemicals, trucks on roads. Right. If we really see a soaring rig count, let's say, in the next couple of years, what, there's certainly an environmental impact to that, but is there even access? Is there enough sand, water in Alpine High or in West Texas or in South Texas? Now, that's a great question. And one of the reasons that it's becoming more and more economic is because of uh, ways of industrializing the process rather than, you know, if you think about it, uh, we're kind of at the very last tales of here was exploratory drilling and we're using all the rules that we used in exploratory drilling to go do these. And now as we're moving into an industrialized an industrialization process, what you're seeing in West Texas is, uh, you know, Lane Christensen is building a freshwater pipeline up there so that there is a central location for fresh water that's e easily available, that's gotten from areas where it's cheap and plentiful and moved to areas where it's not. Uh, the sand, using local sand, the Atlas sand thing that was in the Wall Street Journal here, they'll say, that is right there in the middle of it. And then you see some of these, you know, uh, uh, Rock Pile Energy just got uh, acquired by Keene. They were doing some interesting things with regards to trucking and moving equipment back and forth with the idea of centralized locations of these things where you can move these at night, you can move and have a lot of uh, products ready to go, and then you're using just trucks to go pick it up and move it around there. Rather than a new truck for every load of sand, your sand's already there and you're using one truck where you were using 100. Because you're exactly right, the whole infrastructure of the road, I was driving up to southeastern New Mexico the other day and trying to cross I-20 at, uh, at Pecos and it was like trying to cross Manhattan Midtown. You know, it was, uh, there was so many trucks there. It can't handle that kind of thing. And what you're seeing is rather than trying to scale that is to try to industrialize the process so that you're actually really reducing the footprint to be able to go out there and be able to deliver these things. Russell, sorry, but I got here a few minutes late, so I just will make one observation. Um, I didn't realize I was walking in, and I'm not an apologist for the oil and gas industry, but we've spent an entire 45 minutes putting the, the industry back on its heels. I want to go the opposite direction. Um, as some of my colleagues know, uh, we've launched and will continue to unfold a, the largest demonstration hub on oil and gas water innovation in the nation. As a result of making that announcement out in the Permian, which will unfold over the next couple of weeks even further, Saudi Arabia, UAE, around the world has now come to the reality that Texas is a place that is innovative, entrepreneurial, 
and is the only place in the world to test drive a global solution to how you handle all of what you all have been discussing. So my proposition of my question is, Ryan, we need to make Texas the global hub of oil and gas water innovation. And it's not going to be done by a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of regulation. It's going to be done by unleashing what's already occurred and what Alan just mentioned. It's about the economics. So the price of water is not 50 cents or $1.25. All in, it's $3.45 to $9. That drives innovation and ingenuity. So I'd like the panel to respond more to what can we do in Texas to continue to adapt the infrastructure, the investment, and the innovation to become the global leader. Great question. What can we do to, to, to encourage uh, this type of activity? Well, it very much ties into the last question. I mean, as, as demands on thing, everything from sand to water go up and the usage goes up and there is a scarcity, the costs go up, and you'll see tremendous innovation, which we're already seeing, as you mentioned. You're seeing a lot of different, I mean, I've probably heard, not exaggerating, the last year, uh, over a dozen different types or different methods of recycling water not driven by a, a policy agenda as much as an economic agenda. How can we lower cost, lower footprint from a, from a regulatory perspective? And I don't just, I'm not, not limiting this to the Railroad Commission. Let's broaden this out to the entire state of Texas. Just a government standpoint, there is an infrastructure question as well. I mean, you've heard the governor not even talking about oil and gas, just the demand for roads in this state, right? That's not an oil and gas thing specifically, just growth in population, growth in schools, growth in people. It is a constant demand to improve our roadways, and part of that will be to serve the oil and gas industry. So what we have to do as a, as a regulator and as a, as a conduit of information in the oil and gas business is to look for opportunities, one, to provide the infrastructure that government is charged to do, like roads, like water mains, those sort of things. The second one, I think this is more to the question, when you're talking about things, let, let's use water. When there are opportunities, when you know there's an independent operator here, another one here, another one here, and there's regionally some, what can we do to connect them? Because individually, they may not have an economic driver to go out and, de and develop technology, but you pull them together in a dozen groups or 24, 100 of them, all of a sudden the scale of those economics make it very feasible. There's a huge driver to develop new technology, to try new technologies. And we're doing that today. But we're not, connecting those people. Why not have some sort of incentive? I mean, right now, if you want to build a, a building somewhere mm -hmm. and you put a certain amount of park space uh, aside, you get incentives to do that. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't there be incentive to say, look, if you recycle X percentage of water, um, to encourage them, say, well, you go to the front of the line to get your application. Well, what, some, right. some incentive, something to, to encourage a sort of market-based behavior. Well, Why not? Well, well, well we, actually, we actually, I think you just hit on it. We incentivize market-based behavior because we are the only industry on the planet that actually has to pay a market rate for, its, for water. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, that market rate for water is driving this huge amount, this, this revolution in water cleaning technology. I mean, the, what's going to come out of this, what's going to come out of West Texas is going to change the world with regards to access to low-cost clean water. Because they're going to as the a byproduct. Going to figure out how to absolutely clean because you have you have cost on both sides of the equation. Fresh water cost on the front side because nobody wants to give. You know, we like golf courses a lot better than we like oil and gas companies, so we'd rather give them a lot cheaper oil. We have to pay full cost for water on the front end, and on the back end, we have to treat the water that we're coming out or dispose of it. When and most of the companies that I'm seeing are looking and trying to figure out is how much of a closed system can it be so that we're actually treating the produced water that we can use again to go put back into the world. The closer that is, the better. Everybody's looking at that as an ideal. And so 
we have cost to, to dispose and we have cost to buy on the front end. Both of these are combining together in something that's going to be fairly magical. And it's so already market happening. Market signals are working. In this. Uh, absolutely. Well, the, incentives, the incentives are there. I mean, a couple of years ago, Pioneer spent $100 million mm -hmm. to develop a water treatment plant on the back end of Midland's municipal wastewater treatment facility right. as a way of getting water alternatively. So the incentives are there, and we're seeing it in, in large scale right now. All right, let's see if we can more questions. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Uh, this continues in that. I, I would propose that there would be a huge market benefit and economic benefit to Texas to uh, price emissions because uh, the current market design socializes any risk represented by that. But also, we're not getting full value premium for the oil products Texas produces because our oil products are typically higher in energy and lower in carbon content relative to a large portion of the oil that's produced in the world. And as evidence of that, I would point to the fact that most of our crude oil exports from the United States go to crude oil producing countries to be blended with their lower quality products so that that oil can be processed in refineries outside of the United States, outside of the Gulf Coast. So I would propose that there would be a huge benefit to price emissions because the net result would be to use more of our product over time and pay a higher price for it. Yeah, I, I, I know the, the global conversation will continue in that regard. I think it's we don't need to lose the, the opportunity to point out that with, through voluntary means, through market forces, and through technology, carbon dioxide is at a 30-year low. Uh, methane emissions in the United, United, in, in States. United States. United methane States. emissions have declined uh, double digits in the last couple of decades just from uh, oil and gas systems being more efficient, clear burning natural gas. And so as we have these conversations and you impose uh, policies from government, looking at those consequences and what, what that leads to, we shouldn't leave out of the conversation just the good things that have happened mm -hmm. from the marketplace. The consumer is king. At the end of the day, consumers drive policy, and they have the ability to do that, and uh, they will do that as we move forward in this arena. But a lot of that carbon dioxide uh, decline you're talking about came because natural gas began to substitute for coal mm -hmm. in power sure. generation. Absolutely. And a lot of the coal, in all fairness, a lot of the coal starts shutting down because you have things like uh, the MAC res regulations. You're requiring coal plants to be cleaner to spend money. So there is a level of reg regulations that started driving the market. Well, Russ, but you and I would agree that low-cost natural gas is the single reason <laughs> that we have had that displacement. I mean, it's the, the top, the, oh, oh, the top over, reason. Over. I'll give you the top. <laughs> yeah, reason. absolutely. And reason. because of that, we have a we have a renaissance of manufacturing that's occurring here in the United States of jobs that we're going to into and we're going to China because we have clean burning natural natural gas that's available. And it's, it was without, you know, if private investors made this risk. And that's the ones that will lead us out of this uh, in the future. As well. and, I, I, and I would I would just challenge everybody to look at emissions in a certain way as well. So I think that I kind of like, kind of like the Al Gore deal. He, he buys his offsets in the cheapest place possible. Mm -hmm. And we have a, you know, we're worried, we're worried about global climate. We're not worried about Texas climate. And, and as such, it would make sense from a system point of view to go out there and reduce carbon footprint where it's the cheapest and the most beneficial to, uh, to the ecosystem than to force it on the most expensive places. I think the oil industry would fund going, you know, you know the issue of dealing with, uh, dealing with forestation in the Matagrosso. You could offset every bit of Texas's 
issues over there for $25 million a year rather than you know, a half a billion dollars or you know, a half trillion dollars or, or any of these numbers that get thrown around with regards to dealing with it at the most expensive place you're going to do. It's like buying bananas. You know, I want to buy the penny banana. I don't want to go buy the $10,000 banana or the million dollar banana. Yeah, where do you shop? <laughs> it's Whole Foods, Amazon. <laughs> uh, after Amazon yeah. came, the penny bananas came in. Well, yeah. uh, I know we've got lots more questions, but we're right up against uh, the, the time limit for this. So I wanted to thank uh, the panelists, Alan, Todd, uh, Melinda, Ryan, and Ken, and everyone else uh, for coming out this morning to, to start off uh, this day talking about uh, the energy and the environment. So, thank you. Thank you very much. That was fun. Yeah, it was good to be with you.